One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. We're looking today at uh, one of the pervading myths of Britain's Second World War experience and that is this this idea of kind of uh, glorious social cohesion and the idea that the, the war brought Britain together. And it's such a pervasive myth that it kind of influenced not just the war years and our perception of the war years, but obviously the the aftermath long into the um, uh, the, the post war decades, and really uh, right in, into the present. Um, the during the the kind of the various crises of, of Brexit, there was this sense that. Um, British people, or at least those that voted to leave, were trying to reclaim some sense of identity or community that they believed they had lost, something that they were certain that their grandparents experienced when, you know, uh, uh, there was a, a sense of kind of kind of cohesiveness in society that had been um, eroded uh, ever since. And of course, when we start to kind of look at these things. The reality is that it's, it's quite different. Um, there have been a number of studies of wartime Britain um, about that kind of really um, explode this myth of wartime unity. But today we're looking at The People's Peace by Kenneth O. Morgan. Uh, and it, it, here he takes issue with what he calls the facade of unity. Before we uh, get into that, just let you know that um, Mary McNeil, who um, uh, came on the podcast last year to talk about Wallace Carroll, the uh, veteran uh, US reporter, is going to be popping back on Wednesday this week to talk about um, Watergate and uh, with reference to Wallace Carroll again. And also, uh, it's, it's kind of timely because... Uh, the uh, whistleblower uh, Daniel Ellsberg passed away recently so we thought we'd, we'd kind of go there too so do check us out on Wednesday anyway Kenneth O'Morgan writes 
National unity, declared Sir William Beveridge in 1943, was the great moral achievement of the Second World War. It rested not on party bargains or formal coalitions, but on something far more deeply rooted, the mutual understanding between government and people. It stemmed from the deter- determination of the, of, British democracy, uh, of the British democracy to look beyond the victory to the uses of victory, to follow a people's war with a people's peace. D- to much of uh, British opinion at the time... Um, at the time of Beveridge's remarks, the Second World War was seen as a climactic British experience. Observers as varied as Harold Lasky on uh, the Labour left and Harold Nicholson, a Tory, uh, rationalist planners like Patrick Abercrombie or Julian Huxley, um, artists like Henry Moore, populist communities like communicators like J.B. Priestley, agreed that the war years were creating a vast cultural transformation in the British as a people. In place of the ill-formed rhetoric of reconstruction of the First World War, with its bitter aftermath and sense of class betrayal that followed Lloyd George's election pledges of 1918, the majority of which failed to materialise, though there was quite a lot of new housing, there was now a genuine sense of unity rooted in the social and cultural realities of wartime. The lion would lie down with the lamb, as in Henry Moore's sketches of the London population huddling together in ad hoc sleeping arrangements on the platforms of the underground railways during the Blitz. Here truly were to be seen common sacrifice, common purposes, common objectives. Beveridge quoted the Prime Minister Winston Churchill on the Treaty of Ryswick in 1697, writing in his life of Marlborough and how the British invariably threw away the fruits of victory after a successful war. This time though, it would be utterly different. The past would be exercised and the future transformed. Since that time, almost all subsequent interpretations of the history of Britain after 1945 have viewed it as a time of decline or eclipse, both external and internal. Yet the heady impact of the Second World War long exercised its magnetism on a variety of commentators. Um, Across the political spectrum, they saw the experience of Britain between 1939 and 1945 as offering a last fleeting vision of national greatness. Mrs Thatcher, Prime Minister throughout the 1980s, made frequent attempts to evoke the spirit of Winston Churchill, a symbol of great power status and indomitable resolve. The fact that the real Churchill was a paternalist one-nation Whig of romantic disposition, concerned after 1951 to recapture aspects of the social reformism of his younger days, was set aside. For the right, the war embodied constructive patriotism and the will to victory. For the centre-left, progressive, it rather implied social cohesion, Keynes-style budgetary management, economic planning, the human version of social citizenship embodied in the Beveridge Report of 1942. It offered the intellectual and the historical underpinnings of the post-war consensus. Further to the left, politicians like Michael Foote, or even at times Tony Benn, would look back to the war as a crucible of social revolution as George Orwell had done in The Lion and the Unicorn, achieved in the classless sacrifice of the Blitz and military service, and taken much further by the, by the Labour government of Attlee after 1945. Michael Foote, then Labour leader, spoke uh, in these terms during the general election campaign of 1983. So, as, as we can see, and this is true for, I suppose, all participants in the Second World War, Wherever you go, be it America, the Soviet Union, Great Britain, France, China or wherever, 
the war is imbued with special historical and sort of psychological meaning. Countries have to make sense of the past, they have to make sense of the present, they have to make sense of themselves, they have to make sense of their place in the world, and they do that normally, um, national cultures, by telling stories. And the story that the British told themselves during the Second World War is that the war brought out the best in them. It brought out their resilience, it brought out their community spirit, um, and it brought out their... their it, it sort of erased class boundaries and it um, erased kind of the uh, class conflict that had um, been prevalent during the 1930s. And of course, I mean, of course it didn't. And, and any, any sort of cursory rational thought um, will, will sort of point in that direction. Kenneth O. Morgan writes, in a variety of ways, often instinctively felt, the Second World War supplied images that were satisfying and self-confirming. It was crucial to Britain's usable past, as Americans and others interpreted it. Uh, by the 1980s, the, um, the late war was, al uh, was almost too much a part of, thriving um, of, a, of, a, of a thriving heritage industry, um, as were Tudor manor houses or medieval cathedrals. Tourists queued up to view the war cabinet's subterranean quarters in central London, which, by the way, if you uh, are looking for a, uh, an interesting afternoon and you're visiting London, it's always worth a look. The successive volumes of Martin Gilbert's biography of Sir Winston Churchill attracted massive publicity, while the 50th anniversary of the outbreak of war in 1989 launched a huge flood of literature of all kinds. Wartime films such as Brief Encounter or In Which We Serve retained their popularity. The monarchy, following the crisis of uh, Edward VIII's pre-war abdication, gained new strength through memories of George VI's wartime tours of bomb-ravaged cities, while the Queen Mother lived on as a surviving, ever-popular heroine of the Blitz. Um, in his book The Long Shadow by, by David Reynolds, David Reynolds argues that the two world wars gave Britain itself, the the uh, Britain, the British state, um, the British class system, the monarchy, and all the other institutions that make up British life, a kind of a, an unnatural, um, a naturally long life, a kind of a stay of execution that they were facing uh, before nineteen fourteen, with the, the multiple crises that were kind of building up against the Liberal government, and. He argued that, for example, if you take for the example of Scottish nationalism, that the generation that fought and served may have had all sorts of kind of grumbles about the English, but there was still a sense of having fought for the king um, and having served uh, in His Majesty's army and navy and air force, and, um, and and that that couldn't idly be thrown away, and it really took a kind of a, a new generation. Uh, in Scotland from the 1970s onwards um, to um, really advocate for uh, Scottish nationalism in ways that hadn't really been conceived of or thought of in, in, in mass pop, in, in broadly popular ways uh, beforehand. And so that, so that the war has acted as a kind of a, a glue for Britain, which is a, a, often a very kind of fractious and um, unworking kind of 
uh, state and society uh, that sort of like grinds on and, and, and shudders on together. Um, and the war, perhaps we're reaching the end of the, the hold that the war has over British society. Perhaps Brexit was its kind of apogee, uh, though, though we shall see. Kenneth Morgan writes, Enthusiasts for the arts look back on, to the origins of, war, uh, of wartime state planning through the work of the Council for the Encouragement of Music and the Arts, SEMA, and the image of cultural solidarity conveyed by Myra Hess's piano recitals at the National Gallery. On a popular level, Vera Lynn's ballads about the White Cliffs of Dover and Meeting Again made her the, vo- vo- the force's sweetheart. Conversely, young hooligans travelled to support the England football team overseas. Um, they expressed themselves through anti-German chants, dating from the propaganda operations of Hugh Dalton at the Ministry of Economic Warfare during the war. Even if, oddly enough, they were combined with Nazi-type salutes and raucous racist, racist sympathy for the National Front. This is obviously talking about kind of the... Um, uh, the, the the National Front, the uh, fascist or British fascist organisation of the 1970s uh, and 80s, which was intimately connected with uh, uh, British soccer hooliganism and violence. Um, it was not unknown for Britain in the late 1980s for social workers to discover German school children beaten up in British schools they attended, even if the causes uh, or course of Anglo-German hostilities were quite unknown to either assailant or victim. Both were stereotypes of an ideal of national greatness on which the post-imperial sun refused to set. As late as July 1990, Cabinet Minister Nicholas Ridley gave vent to a fierce anti-German sentiments and evoked comparisons with Hitler in discussing present-day German attitudes towards the European community. Just going to show that kind of ridiculously stupid attitudes towards Europe by the Conservative Party are nothing new. On this occasion, however, Mrs Thatcher, who is thought to share many of these sentiments herself, was compelled to ask him to resign. The decades that followed the Second World War produced and uh, continue to produce a wide array of diagnoses of the course of modern British history. Almost all of them, in some sense, originated from the perceptions of the Second World War and what it was supposed to have meant for modern Britain. The most fashionable interpretation was that that it was that of consensus. Uh, a somewhat ambiguous and deceptive concept which broadly saw war as enshrining welfare democracy uh, as the dominant national creed. Several features were seen um, as, as central to this process. In economic terms, Keynesian demand management was enthroned by uh, the work of the economic section of the War Cabinet Secretariat, including notable Keynesians such as Mead and Stone while uh, monuments such as Kingsley Wood's budget of 1941 and 1944 and the 1944 white paper on employment policy, largely the work of James Mead. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Chancellors from Crips in 1947 to 50, to Heathcote Amory 10 years later, used a variety of techniques, mainly fiscal, but also to some degree monetary, to produce sustained growth without undue damage. It was hoped to the balance of um, uh, it was hoped uh, to the balance of payments or domestic inflation. From around 1961, more direct forms of government intervention were adopted, but the broad premises, premises um, of Keynesian expansion survived until the economic crises of the mid 1970s. In industrial terms, the war meant a mixed economy, with some significant measures of nationalisation induced by the Attlee government after 1945 and largely retained by the Conservatives in 1951-64. Economic policy was kept on the move, not by Monet-style... Obviously, this is um, Jean Monet, the the architect, really, of the the European community, European economic community, and later the EU. Jean Monnet indicative planning, but rather by corporate negotiations between government, business, and hugely expanded trade union movement. It itself clearly one of the victors of the war. Dr. Keith Middlemas has well described the package contained in the 1944 White Paper on Employment as the enduring system of pluralistic bargaining that it it implied. So, what does all that mean? Well, it it means that. the ideas that were put forward by John Maynard Keynes during the 1930s um, and 1920s for that matter came of age during the Second World War. The Second World War showed that there could be only one, uh, one force in society that could mobilise an entire nation to fight a national war of survival and that was the state. It was assumed, not by everybody, but it was assumed that the state would be able to um, transform British society afterwards. It was not the wish of everyone, um, certainly not um, the Conservative Party, to see the British society transformed after the war. Though in 1947, the Conservative Party... Uh, published a document called the Industrial Charter, and the Industrial Charter 
was uh, a kind of a, a general acceptance that the state and society and the economy and the population had changed and moved towards the left. And the Conservatives concluded in the Industrial Charter that if we are not to be annihilated um, and never win an election again, we must accept that there is nationalisation, a welfare state, a commitment to full employment, free health care and trade union collective bargaining. And with and without those things, then there is really, um, you know, we are we are done for. We'll never win an election again. Um, and this continued really, obviously, until the mid nineteen seventies and uh, nineteen seventy five, and the the advent of, of Margaret Thatcher. Uh, though during for, from nineteen seventy onwards, during the Heath years, there were the beginnings of an attempt to create a new kind of economic consensus. Heath's government proves to be too inept to do this, but his meetings in um, the Selsden Park Hotel, um, with where where they drew up the the Selsden Manifesto, tried to think of you know, these first steps towards thinking of the the country as a business and thinking of um, the uh, managing the country in in some kind of business like way. The, the the these sort of notions of kind of wartime unity, um, obviously, during the war, the uh, much of this is kind of propagated by the Ministry for Information, um, where uh, much of the kind of the photography that we have see of kind of milkmen deliver continuing to deliver milk during the Blitz and um, people sort of celebrate you know in the rubble with cups of tea and uh, cheering for the queen and the, 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 the for the the king and the queen all that sort of stuff these are all staged photos um and they were meant to kind of capture for british people a sense of what it was they were fighting for and what it was that they were continuing to struggle for obviously you know the the point of the blitz as far as the um uh, as far as hitler was concerned was to uh convince the british people to come to the negotiating table uh to get rid of churchill to uh, demand a government that would negotiate um it's not wasn't a particularly well thought through strategy by uh, Germany, but Hitler at this point, with his uh, policy towards Britain, has kind of painted himself into a corner, and is aware that um, the, the the Luftwaffe isn't able to break the RAF or to destroy the uh, early warning system or the airfields or anything else like that. So the idea is to switch to city bombing. Um, to bring the population to its knees um, and through mass terror bombing. And the Luftwaffe isn't really kind of geared up for that. What the British and the Americans demonstrate to Germany in the end is that with huge fleets of large four-engine bombers that can bomb day and night, that you can really raise uh, cities to the ground in the way that um, Germany could uh, could only have dreamed of. But the, the, the kind of the politics that... Um, the the propaganda and the imagery helped to build this in, enduring culture. This was a rather rather mythologized culture of everybody all in it together. 
And the reality is, is really quite different, as, as we shall see in this and, and other podcasts. Socially, the war consensus was taken uh, to mean common citizenship and new framed social rights. They stemmed from the 1942 Beveridge Report with its philosophy of cradle-to-grave comprehensivism and were taken much further after the war by the Attlee government, uh, notably through Anari and Bevin's National Health Service. This basic core of economic and social uh, middle way moderation survived even during the traumas of the Wilson Heath period 1964-76. Even in manifestly different, even in the manifestly different climate of the Thatcher government of the 1980s, vigorous debate over the future of the health service or attempts to remodel social security, the social security system to disadvantage some poorer groups or of, the working, um, or of working class children showed how the legacy of 1939-45 to 45 continued to cast its long shadow. Meanwhile, the short-lived Social Democratic Party, founded in 1981, was a rally um, by post-1945 Keynesians to fortify past achievements and defend them against the extremism of the Benite left or the Thatcherite right. I think what Kenneth Morgan is, is trying to say here is that encoded in the experience of the war or the uh, aftermath of the war are the kind of things that make the post-war era what it was. The idea of collective experience, collective sacrifice and uh, shared struggle uh, and uh, translating into um, shared citizenship rights that people as, uh, you know, whether they are rich or poor in Britain as a kind of a result of wartime unity deserved to have um, the, 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 the basis in, in terms of healthcare, housing, education opportunities and employment uh, and a couple of other things besides. And this is what has been fiercely contested throughout the post-war era. Um, there was less unity than you think. The uh, level of crime actually went up during the war. There, there was a great deal of resentment uh, at the idea that wealthier people were able to circumvent rationing through dining out, and so eventually rationing has to be applied to, to restaurants and, and, and that kind of thing. Um, and, of course, there is actually a great deal of, of resentment from wealthier people that their, that their economic power uh, has its wings clipped, not for sound economic reasons per se, uh, but because that you know during in, in times of shortages, everybody ha- had to be seen to be taking a hit. When you are uh, in a world with twin hostile ideologies of fascism and communism, the idea that you have large numbers of disgruntled working class people who distrust and despise their betters, who, who mistrust the state is is a very alarming thing because um, all sorts of dangerous ideas can uh, can find a foothold there 
So we're going to take a pause now, and um, again, uh, as with uh, the first casualty I mentioned the other day, we're we're going to come a lot, um, come back a lot to the people's piece in in the next few weeks. Um, the the story, the book takes us all the way through from 1945 to 1990, uh, and the, the the downfall of Mrs. Thatcher. Um, so it, there, there's a heck of a lot to explore there. Anyway, I hope you found this this useful and helpful. Um, you can always find me at Nick Shepley on Twitter, or um, you can send us a message via www.explaininghistory.org if you have any questions or just things you want to discuss. Um, and you've or you can always uh, check out the rest of the back catalogue here. I've talked immeasurably for potentially potentially dozens of hours about the topic of post-war Britain, so there's always something in the back catalogue to check out. Anyway, thanks very much, catch you tomorrow, and all the best, and thanks for listening to the Explaining History podcast. Bye-bye.